Israel. Tonight I'd like to spend a little time with you and talking to you about what they are doing now that they're there. What are they doing in preparation for the Messiah? Uh, I'd like to uh, read tonight. We're going to try this again. Uh, I want to read tonight from Luke chapter 21, and we'll begin with verse 29. Uh, And he uh, spake unto them a parable. I read this last week, and it is certainly applicable uh, for tonight. Uh, He spake unto them a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the trees, when they now shoot forth, you see and know of your your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when you see these things come to pass, you know that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. I have one more verse here. Uh, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Y'all bear with us. We're still working on all the the technology here, and uh, we'll get it down pat about the time we're done with the prophecy Bible studies. Uh, But we're going to keep working at it. I deeply appreciate Casey and Chris working so hard with this. The first temple of Yahweh was built by King Solomon around 957 B.C. It was destroyed by Babylon around 587 B.C. Construction of the second temple, which is typically called Zerubbabel's temple. Zerubbabel, if any of you are thinking about having children, would be a good name to consider. Uh, But the second temple... Zerubbabel's temple was begun in about 537 B.C. and was completed around 516 B.C. This second temple was renovated by King Herod and became known, it was no longer referred to as Zerubbabel's temple of the Old Testament, but now it is referred to as Herod's temple in the New Testament because King Herod, king of the Jewish people, had done so much expanse, had done so much remodeling to make it as beautiful as he could, uh, and it became known as Herod's Temple. Herod's Temple is the one referred to in the New Testament, and uh, it is the one that Jesus visited during his earthly ministry. It was also Herod's Temple that was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., What I want you to notice tonight with that little brief history is the Jews have not had a temple to worship in since then. They have not had a temple to worship in since 70 A.D. That's 2,000 years ago almost. It's been a long time. Could you imagine being a church and going seven days without a temple to worship in or seven months? Imagine... Uh, them going for all of this time without a place to worship. There's not been any sense. Both Jews and Christians believe that prophecy foretells of the building of a third temple. Jewish people and Christian people believe that there is going to be a third temple. I also believe there's going to be a third temple. There has to be a third temple. 
there's also, listen very carefully, there is a new generation of Levite priests that is being trained for service in the third temple. Uh, they have already been trained. Uh, the Jewish people now say, uh, from things that I've been able to research and study, they have enough priests of Levi, they have enough young men of the tribe of Levi uh, right now, today, to function in their third temple. They just need the temple and they need their high priest who will be the Messiah. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. They have even blessed the cornerstones of the temple. I mentioned this in conclusion last Wednesday night. They have the cornerstones. There are six of them. They weigh about six tons apiece. They were cut with diamond blades, and uh, they have the cornerstones of the temple already carved out, ready to be moved up to the temple mount. I'll show you a photograph of that in a few moments. All at a time. All of this is going on at a time when the world says it'll never happen. It seems like right now that this is the most least likely time that a temple could be built. As in ancient biblical times, the Jews have begun preparing for the temple. As a matter of fact, they already have it built. They just need to lay the foundation again, and the whole world says it won't happen. But I tell you tonight, based on the Word of God, it will happen. It will happen. I don't care what government leaders say. It doesn't matter what this race of people says and that religion of people says. It doesn't matter. When God is ready for that temple to be built, it will be built. If the third temple is not built, then the God of Israel does not exist. And if he does exist, then he is a liar. The Bible is very clear there will be a third temple. Um, so Jesus the Messiah will return in the near future. Faithful believing servants in Israel are preparing for the Messiah's return. God is providing the knowledge and even supernatural events to ensure that the preparations for His return will be complete. They will be ready as much as possible when the Messiah's foot touches on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Jesus told us of the end of the dispensation of grace in His Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And during the presentation of this discourse, He said, through the parable of the fig tree and even other statements that He's made, He assured us that He would return he said, when you see these things come to pass, you know that summer is nigh in reference to the blossoming and blooming of the fig tree. Most persons who study prophecy and do not confuse themselves with what I believe is one of the most convoluted Bible interpretations, Bible doctrines, if you will, that's running around in society. And if you're here tonight and you believe it... Uh, don't really apologize for hurting your feelings. It's called preterism. Many's ever heard of preterism? Raise your hand if you've heard of it. Preterism is a doctrine that's going around in our society. Uh, stay away from it. I challenge you uh, forcefully. You want to stay away from it. 
Preterism teaches that the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel have already happened. It happened in 70 A.D. when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. So as far as preterists are concerned, they do not believe in the validity of the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, Ezekiel, and other parts of the Scripture. They believe it's already come to pass. I don't know how they make that fit. Um, There's too many holes in that doctrine. I know very little about it. As a matter of fact, I'll just say here in passing, we were planning a trip with our kids. Actually, we went to New York City uh, several years ago, and uh, all, of us, all of us went together, had a great time. And, uh, but right before that, I was confronted by somebody with this doctrine of preterism. So I printed out over 80 pages of material on the Internet on how to uh, discuss that subject with, with somebody who believed it. And uh, I brought all of that to New York with me. And late at night, I'd sit in the bed and study that stuff. And boy, Sister Murphy fussed at me. Can't you leave that at home and just go on vacation for a little while? But when I get passionate about something, that passion goes with me everywhere I go. I can't help it. But anyway, I sat down with some people when I got back. And uh, I asked them three questions about that belief. They cannot answer any of the three questions And I left them literally more confused uh, about what they believed along that line than when I had got there. And I understand they're still uh, believing that even though they cannot explain it, can't understand it. I believe it's a trick of the devil. It takes your hope away and it eliminates that most fantastic portion of Scripture, uh, particularly the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you think that's already happened, what are we doing here tonight? And uh, that's another subject for another time. But Jesus said clearly, when you see these things come to pass, and uh, most people uh, who study prophecy uh, absolutely believe that the countdown for Jesus' return has begun, and it began with the return of the covenant people, the Jewish people, to their covenant land, Israel, in May 1948. And I believe the clock of prophecy has been steadily ticking since then. I believe that we are that generation which will see our Lord appearing in the clouds to call His people home. We believe His second coming will be at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. The Bible teaches it's seven times 360 days or 2,520 days after the resurrection or rapture of the church. Jesus, accompanied by a host of heavenly beings, angels and saints, resurrected and raptured believers. He is going to come back, uh, the Bible said, uh, to the Mount of Olives. You can see in the top of that photograph towards the right-hand corner of it, that is the Mount of Olives. The Bible teaches that he will come from heaven with ten thousands of his saints uh, to the Mount of Olives. And then uh, the Bible also teaches that he will uh, uh, descend from heaven to the Mount of Olives. And uh, I will show you here, uh, this is a view of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Of course, the big building you see right here in the foreground, the gold dome on it is the Dome of the Rock. We'll talk about that in a moment. But this little gate right here, if you can see where I'm pointing, That little gate right there is the eastern gate. You can see that it's blocked up. It looks just like that. I've been there. There's a road right across there. I've ridden down that road. I looked at those gates and I just literally burst into tears knowing 
that one of these days our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ with us en route behind Him is going to go through those gates and He will march victorious down through Jerusalem where their temple will be built right up in this area somewhere. Uh, I'll show you some of that in just a moment. I'll also point out uh, when you descend the Mount of Olives, when you come down from the Mount of Olives, uh, you will cross, uh, go through the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed his last night before crucifixion. And then if you keep going down the hill, you'll cross a little brook called Cedron, which would be right in here somewhere. And then you start going back uphill. It is in this area that the Arabs uh, planted a, or, or put in a cemetery, started burying dead people there, thinking that the high priest of the Jewish people cannot walk through a, seminary, uh, a cemetery lest they would be rendered unclean. Uh, there are several answers to that. I believe if Jesus wants to walk through the cemetery, he can and he can raise people from the dead as he goes so he don't walk on the cemetery and become unclean. Uh, he'll just raise them from the dead. Uh, that's one possibility I think he'll do. But eventually these gates right here are going to be bursted open and the Messiah will make his grand entrance into <coughs> Jerusalem. Um, and then you'll notice uh, the Jews... Also, this is a, what happened to me? It's on this side. Uh, the temple is disappearing before it's built. Uh, but this is uh, a plan of the third temple. And uh, I think this is just truly, truly amazing. Uh, this is what they plan to put on the temple mount. Uh, this is what, is believed and understood that they already have the majority of this is already built and uh, it's in storage. It's is safely hidden away. And much like they built Solomon's temple, if you'll remember, it was all put together away from the site. The Bible is very clear about that. But when it's brought to the site where Solomon's temple was built and it was put together, uh, just one piece uh, right after another, and it's believed that this is how the Jews will build their third temple. And uh, eventually Jesus is going to go through those eastern gates and he'll go into a temple. Uh, could be that very one right there. That's obviously uh, an artist's rendering of it. But uh, he will sit in a throne, uh, on a throne. Probably they teach in the Holy of Holies where the Ark of Covenant is. He will sit there and uh, he will rule and reign, the Bible teaches, for a thousand years with ten thousands of his saints. Again, I will reiterate that uh, a lot of this has already been constructed. It's not on the temple site. It's, it's been constructed and it is in storage. It will also be built. Um, this is the Dome of the Rock. This is where the Muslims worship. It is their third most holiest site. I understand their most holiest site is in uh, Saudi Arabia but this is the Dome of the Rock. It's the third most holiest site. And uh, if you go to, ever go to Jerusalem, you will not be allowed to enter into that building unless you are a Muslim. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's even hard sometimes to even tour the Temple Mount site because of the Dome of the Rock. Um, but when you, when you see it, you'll, you will understand uh, that the Arabs... The Muslim people built this temple. 
I noticed it when I was standing in the Garden of Gethsemane. I aligned myself with the eastern gates. The Mount of Olives was behind me. The eastern gates was straight ahead of me. And uh, Brother Lee Stone King was there. Another minister friend of mine, Jeff Moses, was there. And when I stood there, and I stood there and just made sure my eyes were not tricking me, I was looking straight ahead at the eastern gates, straight into Jerusalem, and noticed the Dome of the Rock was way off to the side. I turned around and just literally screamed for these two men to come over. And uh, I, I said the, the, they, they missed it. When the Muslims built the Dome of the Rock, they missed the Temple Mount site. They were trying to do this, obviously, to prevent the Jews from building the third temple. But they missed it. It's built over to the side. It's now been, it's now been documented that uh, the Jews could actually build their, their temple uh, on this temple site and the Dome of the Rock still be standing. I personally believe that if that happened, if the, if the Jews, I want to tell you folks that uh, if you'll remember Yasser Arafat, who was the leader of the PLO, died several years ago. He met with Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton was president. And he made a suggestion. He said, we can, we can divide the Temple Mount up into three sections. We can have our section because the Muslims worship on Friday. We can designate a section for the Jewish people and they can build their temple. Arafat told Clinton this. The Jews can have, they can build their temple because they worship on Saturday. And the Christian people can have a, a piece of the Temple Mount site implying the Catholic people because they worship on Sunday. Yasser Arafat suggested that, and the Jews would not buy into it. They want the whole thing or nothing. But if it happened where the Jewish people built their temple next to the Dome of the Rock, what I believe will happen is when the presence of God blesses that temple, the Dome of the Rock is going to come down just like Dagon did during the time of the Philistines when they put the Ark of Covenant beside him. And the Bible said the Philistines came the next morning, he's laying flat over on his face. I believe the thing's coming down. Uh, sooner or later, uh, I believe it's going to come down uh, to make way for uh, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords to rule and reign uh, on this earth. Thank the Lord. I don't know how well you can see that. But that's a big uh, a picture of the whole uh, third temple. This is what the Jews are trying to construct at this point. This temple must be completely constructed. It must be completely constructed and put into use at minimum by the first half of the tribulation period. It has to because Daniel teaches very clearly that the Antichrist is going to go to their temple and commit what the Bible calls the abomination of desolation, and they're going to realize that he is not their Messiah, and the Antichrist and the Jews are going to go uh, literally to war with each other, and I believe that is what is going to bring about the battle of Armageddon. Ultimately, the Antichrist is going to uh, solicit the armies of the world, particularly uh, the nations around Israel. Uh, the Bible teaches that in Ezekiel 37. Also, uh, He's going to call for Russia and China and they're going to come and their idea is to literally push the Jews into the Mediterranean Sea. And when they begin to do that, Ezekiel said he'll put a, haw, a hook in the jaw of Russia and bring them down. The river Euphrates will be dried up to make a way for the king of the east, which is the Orient, probably China. And uh, uh, 
they will come to destroy the nation of Israel. And when that happens, I believe Jesus is coming back with ten thousands of his saints. It will produce the Battle of Armageddon. I've been to uh, the Valley of Megiddo. I've looked at it. It is one of the most beautiful places you'll see in the nation of Israel. It is absolutely gorgeous, a gorgeous valley full of farmland. Uh, there is a, a, was at that time in 1999, a strategic air force uh, command airport there uh, right by the Megiddo Valley. Very seldom used. It is just for high-level military activities and what have you. And uh, we was actually standing on Mount Carmel where Elijah called fire down out of heaven. We was on Mount Carmel overlooking the Megiddo Valley and uh, just tried to picture in my mind how in the world is it going to be with the Battle of Armageddon there, the blood, the Bible says, running to uh, the horse's bridle. It's just hard to imagine that that day is coming, but it is. Uh, the Word of God is absolutely going to be fulfilled. But the third temple has to be built uh, for the Antichrist to commit the abomination of desolation. Uh, active preparations are being made by the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. And uh, uh, we have a uh, technological thing. Well, I was going to play you a video uh, tonight, and they may have it working by the end of the service. We'll see. But I wanted, to, wanted you to see interviews by two people that work for the Temple Institute, one of them being Heim Richmond that will tell you themselves that they have the temple well underway. Uh, it's well on its way to being constructed, and uh, they'll, uh, they'll be ready for when their Messiah comes. I also want to show you tonight uh, the, the pictures that you're about to see come from the Temple Institute website. You can go home and Google that yourself, and you can look at it yourself if you choose to. But I want to show you tonight based on their information, how close they are to having the temple absolutely prepared, ready for the Messiah. The first photograph uh, that I will show you tonight is the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant is the only object that is placed within the Holy of Holies. Once a year on Yom Kippur, uh, the Day of Atonement, The high priest enters the Holy of Holies asking God to forgive the transgressions of the entire house of Israel. This piece of furniture is made of wood covered with gold. It contained within it in the Old Testament uh, during the period of the first temple, the two tablets of stone that God carved with his finger on Mount Sinai. It also uh, contained a bucket of manna from the wilderness, and it also had in it the staff of Aaron that budded. This is not that Ark of Covenant, uh, but... Uh, fearing its capture, the Old Testament is very clear on this, the original Ark of Covenant, fearing its capture by the invading Babylonians at the end of the Old Testament. King Josiah had it removed from the Holy of Holies. It was hidden in a chamber deep beneath the Temple Mount. And uh, I understand from what I trust as reliable sources that they know exactly where it's at. It has been maintained to this day. They know where it's at. If for some reason when Messiah comes, They cannot retrieve that Ark of Covenant or for some reason there's something wrong with it. This is a mock-up Ark of Covenant that they will use in its place. This Ark of Covenant has been made in case they cannot find the other Ark of Covenant or if something's wrong with it, they will use this one for the Messiah. This is not playing games. 
What I'm showing you in these pictures is their preparation for their Messiah, and these things have been made just in the past few years. The next picture you're looking at here tonight is the crown of the high priest. It is one of the four golden garments of the high priest. It is his crown. It is fashioned from one single piece of pure gold. The crown is worn across the forehead, extending from ear to ear. Uh, you can see it uh, in the, uh, on the priest's head right here in this artist's rendering of it. You can see it right there. Uh, it is worn across his head. It is held in place by a string dyed in the same blue color as used in all the high priest garments. If you see this blue color and so on, and I will ask you to remember that. We're going to come back to that blue color in just a moment. Uh, the crown bears the inscription, Holy to God, and it is worn by the high priest at all time while he is officiating in the temple. This crown is prepared, it's ready, it's waiting for the Messiah. They, the, he will wear that. The Jews believe he will wear that when he goes through the eastern gates, when he's uh, firmly installed in the temple, and so on. Uh, the next photograph that I will show you is the garment of the high priest. Uh, the Temple Institute of Jerusalem said it this way, We are pleased to announce that the weaving of the sacred ephod garment for the uniform of the high priest has been completed. Jesus will wear those garments. When he comes back, uh, and back to the Mount of Olives, as we've talked about, he will wear those garments. The Temple Institute has also completed the complicated task of joining the ephod to the remembrance stones and the affixing of the breastplate. You remember in your Bible study, there's 12 stones on the breastplate right along here that represent each tribe of Israel. All of that has been done. They said, we're pleased to announce it has all been completed. This has been a very complex project, um, and it's been based on extensive uh, research in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, and they believe that they have it absolutely as close as they can get to the information derived from the Old Testament. The next photograph you'll see is they refer to it as the copper laver. We would call it the brazen laver. They call it the copper laver and stand. It stands in the temple courtyard between the sanctuary and the outer altar that we would call the altar of sacrifice or the brazen altar. It is the first, it's the, it's the first of the temple vessels to greet the priest each morning. There the priests wash their hands and feet before proceeding to attend uh, to the daily offering. This is what we would refer to as the brazen laver. I think this is very interesting right here. This is the menorah or the seven golden candlesticks. Uh, I understand from uh, Brother Jeff Moses, uh, who is someone that uh, we knew very well several years ago. Uh, he actually had a photograph. Some of you here tonight have seen it. I know Brother Merrill will remember it. Uh, Heim Richmond allowed Brother Moses to take a picture of the menorah, but it's not this one. They have a menorah that they believe is actually from Solomon's temple. It is the original from Solomon's temple. They still have it today, and, uh, but they use this one to literally practice with 
to train the high, the, or, or the priest of the temple, and so on. This menorah is made from one single piece of gold, as the one of the Old Testament was. It stands in, on the southern side of the sanctuary or the Holy of Holies. Each morning a priest prepares and rekindles the, the wicks of it. The central wick, known as the western candle, is required to burn perpetually. The oil and wicks of this candle are changed in such a fashion as to ensure that it will never be extinguished. I want you folks to understand, I'm not just showing you pictures of what this stuff looked like in the Old Testament. This is what they have now. And they're ready for their Messiah. If they can get that temple that's already constructed, if they can bring the pieces of it to the temple mount, put it together, they will be ready for their Messiah. The next photograph that you will see is their table of showbread. It's on the northern side of the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. It's a table of showbread. The table is made of wood overlaid with gold. Upon it are placed 12 loaves of showbread. Each Sabbath, the loaves are simultaneously removed and replaced by fresh loaves so as to ensure that these loaves remain perpetually on the table. Miraculously, they say, the Temple Institute says, the week old loaves being replaced also retain their heat and freshness to this day. When they practice and they put showbread, they'll come back a week later, replace that with new bread, and they say the bread that's been up there for a week still has the heat and the, re- the freshness as though it had just came out of the oven and then is distributed among the priest as they rehearse for their Messiah. The next photograph you see here is the altar of incense. It's located in the center of what they call the sanctuary. We'd call it the Holy of Holies. It's between the menorah of the seven golden candlesticks to the south and the table of showbread to the north. It stand, it, it's the altar of incense directly in front of the Holy of Holies to the west. This, this incense altar made of wood covered with gold is employed in what is considered to be the most beloved aspect of the temple service in God's eye. The incense offering uh, is something that the Jews are just, they're passionate about it in order to allow the priest to go and perform his most prize of offerings. This is what happened with Zechariah when the angel appeared to him and announced the birth of John the Baptist. This is such an honor to the Jewish priest, and there are so many of them that work in the temple. Even now, in our present day, I understand, uh, there's, I've read there's between two and 4,000 priests that's already trained. They all want to do this, and of course only one can do it, so they just draw lots. They draw names. And in the New Testament, when Zechariah was tending to it, When the angel appeared unto him while he was taking care of the altar of incense and the angel said that you and Elizabeth are going to have a son. His name's going to be John the Baptist or John. Uh, Zechariah was all confused about that. But Zacharias actually was not a full-time employee of the temple, but he was qualified as a priest. And he came to Jerusalem to do that job for two weeks. That's all he did. And then he went back home. The priest back in those days would get a two-week shot at taking care of of the altar of incense, and that's what they're doing even now today. So understand that Israel will have the third temple built and furnished and trained priests available at the time of the Messiah's return. They already have it. They're not working on it. They already have it. If they think it's close, it's seven years ahead of that for us obviously for the tribulation period. You hear what I just said? If they think it's close, then it's seven years sooner than that for us. 
we don't have a lot of time. I also want to mention to you tonight about the priest. I find this incredibly interesting. You can go home and Google it yourself if you want to verify it. I don't know how the Jews did it, but there is a family name in Israel that they have studied for the past number of years. The last name is Cohen. It actually comes from the Kohathites, who were one of the sons of Aaron uh, in the Old Testament when they were in the wilderness. They have discovered a DNA strand of the seed of Aaron. And they have run this test on these two to 4,000 young men in the nation of Israel. They're not just praying to be tr- priests. They're of the tribe, or, or excuse me, they're of the seed of Aaron. They're Levites. And not only are they just training, but they're waiting for their Messiah. They're waiting for their Messiah because they're going to work for him in the temple. They're ready and they're qualified. Their blood has been tested. They're not guessing. They know they're qualified. They know that they're of the seed of Aaron. So Israel will have the third temple built. It will be furnished and the priests will be trained at the time of the Messiah's return. This is very interesting to me. Jesus' title, of course, in the word of God is the anointed one. He is anointed. He is the anointed one of God. In Old Testament Hebrew, this title is Ha-Meshiach, from which is derived the Messiah. In the New Testament Greek, this title is Ho-Christos, from which is derived the Christ. You have to understand, in the Old Testament, when God gave Moses the law, he was very specific on anointing oil. When you come up to be prayed for, we will anoint you with oil. That's New Testament instruction. But in the Old Testament, when the priests were sanctioned by by Aaron or the high priest at that time, they had to be anointed with oil. Anointing oil has been used for several thousand years, literally. Priests were anointed in Exodus 28. Kings were anointed in Leviticus and 1 Samuel. Prophets were anointed in 1 Kings. When Jesus came the first time, there were three offices or three positions that he came in. First of all, he came as a prince. He came as a prince of peace. Secondly, he came as a priest. Thirdly, he came as a prophet. In his second coming, when he returns to the Mount of Olives, those he will not come in those same offices, they will be changed. He will no longer be the Prince of Peace, but he'll be the King of Kings. He will be our eternal priest. The Bible is very clear on this. He will be our eternal priest, the Bible says, after the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110 verse 4 and also Hebrews chapter 7. He will no longer be our prophet because he is the embodiment. He will be the embodiment of all prophecy. And he fulfills all prophecy by his second coming. Everybody say amen. So Jesus must be anointed, according to Daniel 9.24. The faithful followers must have the anointing oil. Now I don't know what you're going to think about all this. It doesn't make me any difference. I know God has a plan and he's going to bring that plan to pass. The Lord gave Moses the formula for anointing oil 
in, the, in Exodus chapter 30, verses 22 through 34. The formula recipe that was given to Moses for the highly fragrant anointing oil consisted of five ingredients. It had liquid myrrh, sweet-smelling cinnamon, sweet-smelling cane, cassia, and olive oil. At the time of Jesus, anointing oil included highly fragrant, uh, fragrant persimmon sap, this tree and that grew in Israel at that time is now extinct. So the oil, the anointing oil that would be required for Jesus to be anointed, one ingredient of that anointing oil is missing, and the tree that it comes from doesn't grow anymore. It's not a problem for God. In the late 1980s, archaeologists uncovered a jug of anointing oil from a Dead Sea cave. You remember the Dead Sea Scrolls? They found all kind of stuff in there. I'm going to talk to you about a copper scroll next Wednesday night that's been found there. They took this oil and it, they ran their test on it as only these Jewish people can do. They're amazing people. This oil that they found in the Dead Sea caves is from the time of Jesus. And tests have confirmed that it is the authentic formulation of anointed oil. So now Israel is now ready. They have the oil that they believe they'll need to anoint Jesus as King of Kings and their Messiah. They have it all ready in place. The next thing that they have done and that they are doing is they are putting together, they are raising, breeding a red heifer, I'll talk to you about that next Wednesday night, Lord willing. I want to talk to you about the red heifer next Wednesday night. But they believe that they have to have the ashes of the red heifer. For all of us city dwellers, a heifer is a virgin cow. The Torah, or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Numbers 19, demands a special heifer to purify the temple and the priesthood. The heifer must be blemish-free, two white or two black hairs, among the red hairs would disqualify her. I'll have a picture of one next Wednesday night. And she must never have worn a yoke about her neck. The heifer must be slain, the Bible said, outside the camp, and all of her parts must be burned with cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet. The heifer's ashes may be sprinkled or mixed with water for purification purposes, and it will be used to purify the third temple. Let me read tonight from Exodus Uh, chapter 36 and verse beginning with verse 25. And I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness, from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and you shall do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I also, I will also save you from your uncleanness. I will call for the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field, that you shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Uh, Then shall you remember 
Then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord God. Be it known unto you. Be ashamed and confounded by for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, you shall, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities and in the waste, and the waste shall be, uh, shall be builded. Um, and the desolate land shall be tilled. The desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, This land was, that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are uninhabited. And the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant that that was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. The Jews believe that for this to happen, not only will they have to sacrifice a perfect red heifer, but they're also going to have to have the ashes of the last red heifer uh, to accompany that. Uh, They believe they have found the ashes of the last red heifer that was sacrificed. Again, I'll talk more in detail about this next Wednesday. But Israeli farmers are diligently breeding and searching for a perfect red heifer. Well, several years ago, they thought they had the perfect red heifer. But she grew a few white hairs before her third birthday and was disqualified. I saw a YouTube interview just several days ago. Heim Richmond over the Temple Institute says they are convinced now that they have the perfect red heifer. She was born on March the 14th, I believe it was, 2010. She's a little over a year old, needs to be three years old uh, at least before she can be uh, sacrificed. Some scholars argue that the new or the modern red heifer's ashes must be mixed with the old ancient ashes, ashes from a previous sacrifice. Uh, I will say, based on my study and other things that I've studied, I cannot find where this requirement is necessary, nor was it ever included in the Old Testament. However, some scholars are searching for the copper scrolls. I'll talk to you about that next Wednesday night. One of the Dead Sea Scrolls for clues to try to locate the ashes from the last red heifer. Brother Lee Stone King said one time that the Jews believe they know where the ashes of the last red heifer are. But Israel will undoubtedly have what they need as far as the red heifer is concerned when it's time to purify the third temple when their Messiah comes. Um, It's close. We're close. We have to be close. Uh, They have their red heifer and... uh, uh, they're ready for their Messiah. The next thing that I'm going to show you, I believe is truly a miracle. I told you at the beginning of this that the Jews are preparing for the Messiah and God is doing supernatural things to make that happen. This is one of those things. What I'm going to show you on the screen, this is the Mediterranean sea snail, a mollusk, and uh, I don't know how well you can make that out, Uh, If any of you are interested, you can go home and you can Google this. And there's actually uh, some nice YouTube footage of them harvesting these things and uh, uh, getting from them what they need that I'll share with you in just a moment. But this, uh, the Old Testament calls it a tekele, 
uh, it is a blue dye that comes only from this nail. You remember I showed you the garments of the high priest and asked you to remember that color blue? They can only get that color blue. The law of Moses demands it. They can only get that color blue dye from this particular snail. It's the only place they can get it. When Jeff Moses was with us back in the 90s, he said these things were harvested. They, you could only harvest them once every 70 years. The information that I have found just a couple of years ago, for some reason, and they don't know why, but these snails started literally washing up on the Mediterranean seashore. Don't know why. Usually they're very hard to find, very hard to get, but I believe God is giving them to the Jewish people, is literally putting them in their lap and uh, so they can make preparation for their Messiah. This blue dye that comes from this snail is mentioned 48 times in the Old Testament. Blue is the traditional color for the Messiah. Uses of this dye included dyeing the middle garment of the Jewish high priest and importantly, the blue thread in the C-sit. Uh, the C-sit is the fringe corner of the tallet, which is the Jewish prayer shawl. I have one in my office. Uh, uh, there's tassels here. It's believed when the woman with the issue of blood touched the hem of Jesus' garment, that's something... Uh, similar to what she touched, and she was healed instantly by it. This fringe tassel was required to be placed on each of the four corners of the, of the prayer shawl, and a blue thread was commanded to be incorporated into each tassel according to Numbers 15, verses 38 and 39. After the destruction of the second temple, after the destruction of, of Herod's temple in 70 A.D., this tekelay, this blue dye, could not be produced. They couldn't find it. They couldn't harvest the snail that had it. Jews wore tassels from that time until now. I don't know if you folks are hearing this or not. This can't be coincidental. They've gone for almost 2,000 years not really being able to find these snails and to harvest them. Now all of a sudden, from 70 A.D. until 1948, they hadn't been able to harvest them. They hadn't been able to find them. Now, all of a sudden, they're washing up on the seashore of the Mediterranean Sea. You can say what you want, but the hand of God is all over this to me. Everybody say amen. amen. Praise the Lord. So after the destruction of Herod's temple in 70 AD, this blue dye could not be produced. And from that time until just recently, Jews wore tassels of white or white with a black thread throughout their uh, diaspora, or throughout their exile. It is believed that the dye came from a Mediterranean sea snail, this mollusk, although opinions differ. Most scholars believe this mollusk is a, is, is the technical name is a murex, uh, murex uh, trunculus, uh, more recently named a hexaplex uh, trunculus. This snail was thought to be extinct, until it began washing ashore in Israel just a few years ago. The blue dye can now be extracted from the shell of this or from the snail. Interesting, the blue color appears only when the dyed wool is exposed to sunlight. When they harvest it, it's purple. But when they dye it and they put that thread in the garment, as soon as the priest's garment hits the sunlight, it turns to that beautiful blue that you saw a few slides back. 
When it hits sunlight, when it hits sunlight, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You can say what you want, but I see the hand of God all over this. So Israel is now ready. They have the precious blue dye necessary to welcome the Messiah with his color, with the color that represents who he is and what his office is. The middle garment of the high priest's uh, garment and the blue thread of the seasit can now be authentically dyed. They don't have to use a substitute. They have the real thing. Everybody say amen. I have two uh, quick points uh, to cover uh, here tonight. Uh, and we'll wrap this up. <clears throat> I mentioned to you a few moments ago, and I'm going to go through this briefly again, about the priest that's going to work in the temple because I want this to be uh, to precede my last point. The last point's going to be very interesting to present to you. I'll be done here in five minutes. God anointed Aaron and his sons as priests and decreed that only the descendants of Aaron may serve in the priesthood. That's in Numbers chapter 3, verse 10. These priests, the Kohanim priests, as the Bible refers to them as, are directly descended from Aaron. After 2,000 years, you folks need to hear, he that hath an ear, let him hear. After almost 2,000 years of intermarriage, among the Jewish people. It began with years of Babylonian exile and then their diaspora, their exile for some 2,000 years. Is it possible to identify which Jews are Kohanim Jews or those that are descendants of Aaron? The Jews have discovered through DNA testing, they show that there are specific genetic markers in the Y chromosome, which is the male chromosome of DNA DNA testing, which is present only in the Kohanim tribe or offspring, the descendants of Aaron. Aaron's male descendants can now be confirmed with modern testing. I believe God marked his priest for this moment. Young men, descendants of Aaron, are actively training to serve in the Jewish priesthood and to be the third temple, the last temple priest. So Israel will have a priesthood from Aaron's lineage as decreed by God to serve in the third temple. The last point I want to make here tonight, and I'll conclude with this point, and I think this is very interesting. In all of the prophecy teaching I've heard all of my life, I never gave this a thought. It would be interesting to know if you have. But did you know in preparation of their temple and bringing their Messiah back, they're trying to put together a Sanhedrin court. And I just find that just absolutely remarkable. When I read this material, I wanted to literally run around the parking lot of this church. It just did something to me. You'll understand why in a moment. The Sanhedrin was the legislative and judicial governmental body of the Jewish people 
during the time of Christ. It is believed that the Sanhedrin court evolved from the 70 elders that were founded by Moses when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. You remember that? His father-in-law came to him and said, Look, these people are driving you crazy. Why don't you set up men to rule over these people with you? And he did. He chose out 70 elders, and this was founded by Moses in Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. Fast forward to the New Testament. Again, this, this, this legislative and judicial governmental body of the Jewish people during the time of Christ had its beginnings with, a, with Moses, with the children of Israel in the wilderness. The Sanhedrin was involved in the trial of Jesus, Matthew chapter 26. As a matter of fact, it was the Sanhedrin that ultimately condemned him to death. You remember that? And when Jesus, right before he was crucified. The Sanhedrin council called Beth Din Haggadah or the great court consisted during the time of Christ of more than 70 members and I can't find why that happened, why it became more than 70. I believe it was around actually 120. If you'll remember, there were two of the Sanhedrin court members that actually helped Jesus. Uh, first of all, Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3. He was on the Sanhedrin court. But it was uh, 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 Nicodemus and uh, uh, Zacharias that helped take him down off the cross when he died, Sanhedrin court members. The Sanhedrin court ceased to exist under Roman rule around 350 A.D. The Jews just finally gave it up. You remember Titus got them in 70 A.D., Hadrian in 135 A.D., and finally, under Roman rule around 350 A.D., the Sanhedrin court was no more. It was dissolved by edict from the Byzantine emperor around A.D. 358. They did not exist for the, throughout the remainder of their diaspora or their exile. It's interesting that in recent years, among the Jewish people, they've expressed interest in reconvening the Sanhedrin. There are prophecy teachers that suggest that the Sanhedrin may be functional at the end of, of the age, right before Jesus' return. Although God does not need man's approval to accomplish His will, could it be that that governmental body that sentenced Him to death will be reinstituted in the third temple and will be used to ultimately put Him on His throne and pronounce him King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the King of the Jews. I have discovered throughout, and, and, and throughout Bible study from cover to cover, I'll give you a prime example. Eve was the first to sin. She partook of the fruit. But God took that vessel. He took the woman and brought redemption. And I could see very clearly where God would take the same governmental body that condemned him to death and use that same governmental body to proclaim him King of kings and Lord of lords. That's just how God works. I'm here to tell you folks, it doesn't matter what our president does. It doesn't matter what the president of Germany, doesn't matter what's going on in France and Spain, it doesn't matter what Russia's doing or China. They can say whatever they want to say about that little old country called Israel, but that's God's people. And he's coming back to them. 
And I have showed you tonight and I have proved to you that it is more sooner than later. I want to plead with every person in this building tonight, if you're playing games with God, that needs to stop. Because I believe the rapture of the church is imminent. Again, I'd submit to you, if Jesus is coming in the rapture seven years before his second coming back to the Mount of Olives, if the Jews believe it's close and they're ready for him and they pray at the Wailing Wall every day, but if they believe it's close, then how close are we? Because ours has to happen seven years before theirs does. We're close. We need to quit playing church, get our priorities straight. I'm not suggesting, as I told someone before church, you don't have to go buy all the canned goods at Winn-Dixie and go move to Montana and bury them in a hole somewhere so you can survive the hard times. I don't believe in going hog wild. But you need to get your heart right with God, and you need to stay right with God because I believe any moment, at any time, we could hear a trumpet sound, and we'll be caught out of here in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. It's not scare tactics. It's just what's going on. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but it's just what's happening. It's what's going on in our world today. If the Jews are ready, then shouldn't we be ready? And I want to be ready. Stand with me. To